Hello, welcome to the Capital Employed Podcast. For this episode, we have the pleasure of being joined by Adam Rackley from Cape Wrath Capital. In this episode, Adam discusses his background, his value investment strategy, red flags he looks for in the company's accounts, two stocks he's bullish on, and key lessons he has learned from over 20 years of investing. Before we begin, every so often we will be doing write-ups about stocks from around the world that have piqued our interest. These will be mostly smaller companies that go under the radar of most financial media. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, visit capitalemployed.substack.com and add your email to the list. That's capitalemployed.substack.com. Okay, let's dive into this week's episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Adam. Hi Adam, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Could you provide a brief introduction to yourself and Cape Breath Capital? Of course, yeah. Hi John, thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on. So, aside from a, a brief uh, stint in the army, I've always worked in and around um, equity research and fund management. So, I've been um, in the investment industry, I guess, for pretty much the last twenty years. I started off on a uh, on a graduate program uh, with a, a global growth investment trust that at that time was based up in up in Dundee. So I did a couple of years with them and finished up as an analyst looking at the um, oil and gas and resources sectors. It was kind of an, an office full of nice people with lots of experience, but it was um, a, a firm which had very little by way of clear investment philosophy or process and so as a kind of young buck trying to learn the ropes it was a really difficult place to kind of to grow and develop so i moved down to a firm called montanaro asset management based uh, in london and the setup there couldn't have been more different so very clear investment philosophy very clear process fantastic place to learn and i spent um the next four or five years at montanaro managing first of all as an analyst and then managing um a uk and european income fund along with some um some segregated mandates i left montanaro in uh 2010 summer 2010 and uh i had a kind of a kind of bucket list of things i wanted to do so i had a couple of adventures um wrote a book um lectured in finance got married became a parent, set up a financial training company. My wife and I moved to um, Mumbai for 18 months where I worked for an equity, an outsourced equity research firm over there. Um, and then we moved back to London in, in 2015. And in 2016, um, I set up Cape Wrath. Um, and that's the, uh, the firm that I've been, I've been running since. Your background is um, quite fascinating. And I believe you've also um, rode the Atlantic as well. Is that correct? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was um, 2010. Yeah, a friend and I um, rode across the Atlantic. Yeah, it took us uh, 11 weeks, 77 days, and uh, it was. It's funny. We kind of had this, had this, um, had this idea before we went off that it would be a bit like, um, you know, chariots of fire meets a perfect storm. You know, this kind of incredible, you know, heroic endeavor against the sea, but. Uh, in the end, it was a bit more like Groundhog Day, to be honest. It was, you're kind of rowing for two hours, um, and then you've got a two-hour break to eat and get some sleep. Um, and you just repeat that two-hour shift pattern, um, you know, 24 hours a day until you get to the other side. So it's pretty, it's pretty grinding, and it's pretty, um, it's as much a mental challenge, I'd say, as, as a physical one. 
Yeah, I can imagine it's very physically and mentally demanding. In regards to Cape Wrath Capital, what type of businesses do you like to invest in? Are there any specific characteristics or situations you look for? Yeah, so, I mean, we, um, Cape Cape Wrath Capital, we have what we call a differentiated uh, value strategy. So we target pockets of of analytical and behavioral inefficiency um, in the form of capitulation events and and narrative shifts. Um, And, you know, in, in a previous life, I've been a quality growth investor, and there we definitely targeted a specific type of business, you know, cash generative, growth company, dominant position, niche market, high return investment, all those kind of things. But actually, as a special situation, deep value investor, it's more, it's more the situation rather than the type of business itself that we are, that we're, that we're targeting. So we are essentially looking for, for two things. We're looking to enter on a capitulation event. And we're looking for a situation where we believe there is the opportunity for a narrative shift, what we call a narrative shift. We define a capitulation event as a situation where existing shareholders are exiting for emotional rather than analytical reasons. So you might have a company that has had a series of profit warnings over a number of years. Um, it might be a stock um, that was once a kind of fitted fitted a kind of quality growth profile, but no longer does. And it could be that it's kind of become a, a de minimis part of, of of the investor's portfolio, and they are kind of tired of answering questions about it. It's taking up a lot more kind of emotional bandwidth than it should, given its kind of small position size in the portfolio. And there comes a point where they decide um, that they just want to get it out of the portfolio. They're sick of you know, having awkward questions about it. It doesn't fit their quality growth profile anymore. And although there might be plenty of upside to the stock, um, it's just not worth holding on to it. For us, that, those capitulation events can provide ideal entry points. But, but, but of course, you know, the, the biggest risk facing a kind of deep value investor is a value trap. So we do a lot of work to try and understand the fundamentals of the business and to work out whether or not, um, there is a, a decent business kind of underneath that, that provides the opportunity for the second thing we look for, which is a narrative shift. The way we look at things, there are a lot of different narratives in the market, be they you know, narratives on the part of um, owners of the shareholders in the business, or short sellers, or analysts following the company, or the management team, or narratives in the press. Um, uh, and at any one time, one of those narratives will be dominant, and that will be essentially driving the, the multiple, driving the valuation of that business. Um, and we're looking for situations where we feel that there are a small number of events or catalysts that could cause that narrative to shift, to drive a re-rating to what, what we believe is the fair or what we call the approximate value for the business. So those are the types of situations that we look for. And I draw the distinction between, you know, looking for a certain situation uh, as, as we do versus looking for a certain type of business, um, as, as you might do if you're a you know, quality growth type investor. You mentioned there some of these stocks, they are cheap, but they're not always the highest quality. They might have a few problems. Um, are there any red mm. flags perhaps buried in the accounts you sort of look for when doing your analysis? Core of our investment process, when we decide to do a deep dive on a stock, we complete an initiation. And the initiation is a list of 
it's around these days probably around 95 questions divided into 12 sections um and those questions are all basically trying to kind of poke holes in the company and identify you know what the risk factors are a lot of the work that we do is around understanding how robust the cash flows are so um in terms of red flags we'll look at um how um, we'll look at the components of working capital, so accrued income and deferred income, for example, and how those relate to revenue recognition. So it is relatively easy to or put it this way. There's a lot of subjectivity in how a company recognizes its earnings. And so it can be relatively easy to ma- manipulate those earnings. Cash flow is harder to manipulate, but it's still possible to manipulate cash flow so you can do things like factoring for example to make your cash flow in one period appear stronger than than it actually is and um you know you can you know stretch out your payables or stretch out your receivables um in order to in order to kind of shift cash flows from one period to another so we spend a lot of time looking at the the components that make up free cash flow any trends that could indicate the management's trying to juice the earnings or perhaps to, to, to boost the cash flow in, in any particular period. And then what that means for a company's net debt position. You know, so you could have a company that on the face of it um, looks like the balance sheet's in relatively good shape. But actually, once you unwind all of the working capital, you find that's actually got a huge amount of debt on the balance sheet. A great example would be you know, Thomas Cook Group, which, which obviously went bust a few years ago. And at the end of the kind of year end, just before they went bust, it looked like they had, I think it was like 80 million of net debt on the balance sheet, which was tiny for a business of that size. Um, but actually, at the point at which they went bust, they had over a billion of net debt. Um, and that's because of the working capital cycle at a holiday business like Thomas Cook, where they take your deposits uh, on your holiday in advance. Um, say around kind of Chris, Christmas time um, before the, the busy summer season, holiday season, um, but they don't pay the hoteliers um, until the autumn time. So they have this massive working capital flow. So depending on at what point during the year you look at the business, it could appear that they've got loads of cash or they've got you know uh, uh, a large net debt position and the balance is made up by the working capital. So the, the cash they get in from their customers and pay out to their suppliers. So, um, so yeah, we spend a lot of time looking at, looking at um, how kind of cash flows unwind, because particularly if you're considering companies that could be in a in, in a position of, of distress or, or where the market has, is, is anxious about them, then it's important to, to get comfort on those on those risk factors. I'm, I'm fascinated by your portfolio. Looking through it, you've got some really interesting businesses. Many are on P's of two, three. Are there two stocks that you have yeah, sure. on for the long term? And what was your thesis for investing? Yeah, sure. I mean... It's an interest, interesting question in that you ask kind of uh, stocks we're interested in for the long term. And, and you know, again, if we were quality growth, uh, you know, I, th- I think there are lots of kind of heuristics in our industry around what constitutes a kind of proper way of investing. And one of them is precisely that, um, you know, kind of pro- proper investing is about investing for the long term. The whole Warren Buffett thing, you know, you know, my ideal holding period is forever. But actually, you know, we... Every time we look at a company, we come up with a clear idea of what that business is worth, um, which we call our, our approximate value. And if we can achieve that approximate value within a shorter time frame, then that's actually 
that's better for us and our investors. You know, that, that's a more successful outcome if we have a six-month holding period rather than a six-year holding period. To answer your question more directly, that there are there are I mean there are some situations where we invest in companies and the company has you know, fantastic um, kind of earnings upgrades and, and actually our holding period might extend because our approximate value keeps on increasing um, in line with those increased expectations. And a good example of that would be a company called Samara, which I can talk about in a bit. At the other end, you've got companies where we have an idea of what the business is worth um, and it may be a more mature business or maybe in a more mature industry where we're not expecting significant earnings upgrades over time um, and so our, our holding period may be relatively shorter because we see a shorter term catalyst and we don't expect our approximate value to increase and so we're looking to exit you know in the shorter term as it hits that catalyst and a good example there um, might be Enquest the UK North Sea um, oil and gas company so kind of diving into those you know two um examples i mean take enquest to start with you mentioned there are companies in our portfolios with you know two three times p's well enquest is just just such an example you know it's trading on on a p of about one and a half times um it's trading on a free cash flow equity yield of around 70 percent it is um uh oil and gas company um focused on the uk north sea and malaysia it um, has a strategy of targeting mature oil fields um, and putting in place increased oil recovery. So trying to kind of squeeze the extra barrels out of these out of these more mature fields. Across the world, um, you know, average reservoir decline rate is probably somewhere like something like eight percent. So if if you kind of don't add um, extra fields. Um, if you don't do kind of tiebacks and enhanced oil recovery, then that's that is the natural rate at which your kind of oil production is going to decline. It's a bit higher in you know more mature basins like the North Sea. So Enquest's strategy is really to try and put in place techniques to to kind of reduce those natural decline rates and get the most they can out of these mature fields. Now, obviously, oil is a is a pretty unpopular sector. We took uh, this position. We we had invested in Enquest in the past, but most recently we, we took position in Enquest um, in 2020 when, in during COVID, you know, oil. I mean, oil futures in the, in in the states you know, briefly went uh, went went negative, and you know the the market could see no reason to you know to to invest in in oil companies. So these things were trading at very low. Valuations now, Enquest is still trading at a very low valuation. It's interesting, you know, talking about different narratives. You know, I was looking at a popular uh, retail uh, investment magazine uh, over the weekend, uh, which features Enquest in it, and um, it's got a you know a few paragraphs, which which basically read like a, like a buy case. And then and then the end of the of the final sentence, it says, but the total debt overhang still dwarfs the market cap. Uh, recommendations sell and i thought that was really interesting you know because that that illustrates really nicely one of the narratives in the market that could well be you know driving the share price for enquest and this is a perception that it's you know significantly over levered it's got too much debt on the balance sheet um and on, on the face of it you know that's that's a fair point because enquest has got about 800 million of net debt uh 800 million dollars that is market cap 
would be around half half a billion pounds, maybe six hundred million pounds, something like that. So it does have you know a, a bigger net debt than its market cap. But interesting things to note: first of all, you know that market cap is 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 only one and a half times earnings, and secondly, the company is trading on a you know seventy seventy percent free cash flow equity yield. So in the first, it just recently reported their first half numbers in the first half of the year. Uh, they generated about $350 million of, of free cash flow. So Enquest is going to be debt-free, should be debt-free in you know under two years, call it 18 months probably. And so, you know, that's a that's a really powerful trigger for the, you know, the bear case that this is a company that's overlevered, overlevered because in 18 months' time, they're going to have no debt at all on their balance sheet and they're going to have you know a big question as to what what they're going to do with the you know 70% free cash flow yield you know what are they going to do with all this cash flow they they're generating we apply some very conservative valuation metrics when we're trying to value enquest we 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 basically t- assume that the that we're going to harvest cash flows over the next 5 6 years and then whatever's left of the business is going to be worth very little which is, a, I guess, a conservative way of, of valuing what is a what is a mature um, industry, and on that basis, you know, we see easily in excess of a hundred percent upside here. But Enquest, as I mentioned, is an example of a stock where we're not expecting a you know a run of upgrades to continue, you know, driving our fair value higher, but where we see a strong catalyst that should drive a narrative shift. Another example of a Position our portfolio would be um, would be Samero. Uh, so Samero is uh, the market leader in um, the manufacture of, of laser guided screening machines, um, which um, which is a machine um, that you would need if you wanted to lay a very flat concrete floor. Uh, so the market for this is in laying very flat for, floors for warehouses, for example. So there's a kind of e-commerce growth, ang- growth angle. And uh, in North America, actually, a lot of um, roads are concrete rather than tarmac. This created a really nice opportunity for us when we entered the position around October 2019. So the shares had fallen around 50% over the previous nine months or so off the back of a very wet well i think it's the wettest summer on on record in north america which basically meant that over the kind of summer concrete laying season um the specialist contractors were were unable to lay any concrete um and so this um reduced demand for the kit which is what samara manufactures and also for the kind of maintenance and service which is which is uh, what samara also also provides um so the shares fell you know, 50%, um, the market took this seasonal uh, impact and extrapolated it and imagined that the company was, you know, the growth and profitability were permanently impaired. So we picked up the shares just below two, two pounds um, in October 2019. But, uh, since then, the shares have doubled, but they're actually about 30% cheaper than when we bought them because they've, because the earnings growth and the earnings upgrades have significantly reduced the, the the PE ratio, so we still see a significant opportunity here for for a re-rating. I mean, Samero is a 
fantastic quality business. They generate return on invested capital of around 65%, which is challenge anyone to you know, find me an industrial business with a high return on invested capital. Um, they've got EBIT margins of around 35%. Similarly, it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely um, incredible, you know, top percentile type type EBIT margins. Um, so this is a, you know, and, and they're a you know, market, market leader with, with, you know, kind of long-term, having delivered long-term uh, growth and with a significant, uh, you know, market opportunity. So it's it's a high quality business trading on a single digit multiple that could easily trade on two three times the multiple um and and as i said they've they've enjoyed significant um you know earnings upgrades over the time that we've that we've owned them so that's a stock which has been a longer term holding for us and and, and you know could be could, we we could hold it for 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 a much longer you know period if our approximate value continues to to increase i'm just getting maybe the uh, feeling that What's keeping it maybe a bit suppressed is just that fear of the rising interest rates and what that does to um, the construction industry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so that's a that's a great point. So that that is the bear the bear case on Samaro um, is that they are tied to the well, they're 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 kind of leveraged to the construction uh, non residential construction sector, and that you would expect you know declines in their revenues to be you know. Much higher than um, the declines in the, um, in, in, in the in the in the construction sector as a whole. I mean, if you wind back to you know 2009, last time there was a very significant crash um, in the construction sector in North America. It, it had a material impact on Samara's revenues, but they remained uh, profitable um, throughout that period. So, I mean, it's it's absolutely fair that there is, you know, for, for this company, as for many companies, you know, some kind of weaker environment ahead. But I think, you know, as the, the company is has significant net cash balances um, and, you know, they're, they're well positioned to, to, to weather the storm, probably to remain, you know, profitable through through whatever kind of circumstances unfold. And it's providing a great dividend as well. Thanks for sharing those two companies. Um, we're getting close to time now. I just wanted to ask you, though, if you could go um, back to when you first started investing, uh, in, in hindsight, is there anything you would do differently with the, the knowledge you have now? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, I'm always learning, John. Every, you know, every day there's something new, and that's part of the beauty of this industry and this career, I guess, is that um, there's always more to learn, and the environment itself is always changing. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not like there's a kind of fixed textbook, actually, you kind of adjust your expectations and how you think about the market and, and the world, um, you know, you adjust it every day as, as, as things change. I mean, I've, I, I love investing because it's a way of thinking about the world, you know, and that's, and that's the really fascinating thing. So, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, there's been, you know, every day is a learning day. I, I think, you know, one one uh, kind of important thing that that you know most all maybe investors go through is that transition from thinking about you know what is the return I can get on this to you know as you as you kind of develop actually what are the what are the risks that I'm taking to get that return I, I think that you know perhaps as you know in earlier days I might have been more obsessed with finding you know companies right or 100 200 percent upside but actually 
you know, I'd, I'd be much happy to take a company with 50% upside, but significantly less risk um, attached to that. So I think that's an important part of the toolkit that you kind of develop as you go is a, a kind of a, a, a framework for balancing the, the risk against the return and trying to trying to understand how that should be should be calibrated. The journey I've been on as an, as an investor certainly isn't a linear journey so it's not a question of moving from a position of of ignorance to one of knowledge in a straight line i think it's you know you you could because you're operating in an environment where it can be you know you you've got to work out from your successes and your failures what was down to luck and what was down to judgment um and it's easy to you know, it's a natural instinct to say, well, all, everything bad that's happened is down to bad luck and everything that's good that's happened is down to good judgment. If you do that and you're not aware that you're doing that, then you can easily learn the wrong lessons. Um, and so I think it's important, you know, if you're going to continue to, to, to grow and develop in this industry, to spend a lot of time trying to pick apart what you've, what you've done, you know, good and bad, and trying to work out how much of it is due to your, your process or your intuition or whatever it is you're using to invest. Um, and how much of it is just down to luck or things over which, you know, you, you couldn't have known beforehand um, uh, uh, or, or, you know, information that you didn't even consider when you were making your investment decision. Um, and, you know, I think I've I've probably swung, you know, moved, there's only a point in my career when I was very focused on kind of systematizing my process and um, trying to take intuition out of it and i think you know there's probably there's probably a point where i swung too far that way and you know kind of uh, had to kind of move the balance back a bit and recognize that the human brain i mean you know there, there's a there's a there's a big thing in behavioral investing about trying to trying to ig- ignore your emotions and kind of follow follow your process and, and and i definitely agree to that up to a point but i think what you have to remember is that you know, a your, your your conscious mind can digest a certain amount of you know information, a certain amount of bits of information every second. But your subconscious mind is many thousands of times more powerful than your conscious mind in terms of its ability to to digest information. Um, you know, you think about all the things that you're doing subconsciously just to just to you know just to live just to live you know every day and compare that with a small number of things that you're able to hold in your conscious mind at any one moment in time you know and it, it, it's, it's absolutely you know, exponential difference um and so i think that the you know the real the real key is to be able to acknowledge your biases and harness your your intuition um and so there's certainly been a you know a non-linear journey that i've i've been on you know over my career to to date um in terms of um you know in terms of understanding long answer yeah, to a, your question john but yeah it's a you know it's a it's a it's, it's a fascinating constant learning life. process isn't it absolutely. the journey never ends absolutely. of investing <laughs> absolutely yeah okay where where can listeners go to find out more information about you um i guess um our website would be the uh, the best place to go capital.com. we've got um some uh, broadsides on them, what we call broadsides, which are our kind of thought pieces, which look a bit more at um, you know some company specific stuff and some slightly more kind of philo- philosophical stuff on value investing. And then there's also a bunch of links there to you know to, to articles and press pieces and, and whatnot. So that's probably the best place to 
best place to start. Adam, thanks so much for coming thanks, on to Paul. the podcast. It's been a pleasure to listen to you. Hopefully we can get you back in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having me on, John. It's been really nice uh, talking to you and I'd love to come back.